We're doing a sermon series in our church based upon the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. It's a historical book, but it's not meant to just give us dry history. It's meant to help us to understand how we're supposed to live in the here and now. So if you're a student of history, which is his story, it's God's story, it's meant to help you to learn to live in the moment successfully and faithfully. So our intention is not just to study it so you know more about it, but we want to study it so that you, that you can then live it out more effectively in your life and in our church. Now, all of us, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we receive at least one ministry gift, at least one. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are encouragers. You're servants. You have gifts of discernment. All of us might have some of those skills, but each of you will have at least one very specific ministry gift that God gives you. You discover it, you fan the flame, you put it into practice. It's like a muscle. The more you use it, the better at it you become. And you then bless the church and the Lord will use you to lead many people to Christ and the church as a whole to lead many people to Christ. But some gifts are a little bit more private and some gifts are a little bit more public. And that doesn't mean that some are better than others, but some will serve in more public capacities as preachers, as evangelists, as missionaries, and others will serve behind the scenes. The message we're going to look at today in Acts 13 is a message primarily about the public side of ministry. Preachers and missionaries and evangelists. So if you're, if you're in the church and you're like, well, this isn't a, a message for me because I have one of those behind the scenes gifts, let me just encourage you to stay in your seats because all of us should have an interest in the qualifications and tasks associated with public ministry, all right? So join me in Acts chapter 13. We're gonna look at verses one through 12 and I've entitled this message, Set Apart for Boldness. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us to preach it and receive it with boldness. So here's where we're gonna start. There's several lessons to be had. The first one is this, public ministry is both empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and necessarily affirmed by the Christian church. Now that might seem sort of a bland statement to make, but we'll see how it's actually quite important for us to understand both of these things. Here's how the text begins. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. So these are public offices that are meant to bring the word of God to bear in, into culture, into human civilization. They're named. Listen carefully to the names of these people. There's Barnabas. We've met him earlier. He is Jewish. So that's his ethnicity. He's Jewish. There's Simeon, who was called Niger. That word means black, meaning that he probably was African. There's Lucius of Cyrene, meaning that he was a Mediterranean who was born and raised on the island of Cyprus out in the Mediterranean Sea. There's Menaean, whose ethnicity is not specified. He's probably Jewish, but it says he's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, meaning that he would have lived much of his life outside of the, the Jewish religious community, serving, even though Herod himself, this would have been Herod Antipas was Jewish, serving the technocrats, serving in government. So here we have several teachers and prophets that are named in the early church, and they come from a, a variety of backgrounds. Now you might think that's not abnormal. I've been to church, even in this own church, we have different ethnicities represented. 
But for the first century church, who was largely centered on Jews, to see God now bringing into the church, including into positions of high office, not just Jews, but Africans and Mediterraneans, and over time, others from different ethnic groups, was really an astonishing thing and demonstrates that the gospel that God wanted to see go global in Matthew 28 was in fact going global. That people from all tribes, tongues, and nations were coming to faith in Christ. And then finally, we have our friend Saul. What were Saul and Simeon and, and the rest of them doing? Well, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas, and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So let's ask a few questions of this text. The first would be, who were these people? Well, as I've already alluded to, God, God's gospel, and it is God's gospel, not ours. God's gospel was going out and it was beginning to impact people of a variety of different backgrounds. And that's a beautiful thing. God was sending his people out to preach the gospel in various vicinities. Some were preaching more locally. Some went to far off lands. And God was using the commission that his disciples took seriously to lead many, many people to Christ. This is why we have these details and we can stack them up upon several other events in Acts. Remember Cornelius, the Gentile Roman soldier? Who would have ever thought someone like that would come to faith in Christ? We start to see episode after episode in the book of Acts where people of all tribes, tongues, languages, and nations are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's a foretaste of the eternal kingdom of God in heaven within which people from all tribes, tongues, nations, and groups will worship at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means, brothers and sisters, that as much as it depends upon us in the here and now, we must also commit ourselves to a truly inclusive ministry. Now that word inclusive gets used a lot, doesn't it, in in our broader culture? But it's associated with evil. The Bible demonstrates or shows that the Christian church is truly the most inclusive institution on planet Earth. And it has actually become that 2,000 years even since this event whereby people from all tribes, tongues, languages, and people groups worship at the feet of Jesus. The way we do church needs to reflect that. So this is why I might step on some toes. I am completely opposed to ethno-specific churches. I don't think it's right or biblical to put the name of your ethnicity or your people group on the sign and in the name of your church. It communicates that only certain people are allowed. But rather, we want people from all over the world to feel and to know that they are loved by us and that we want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what were, they were, what were they doing? So God obviously sets apart Barnabas and Saul, who specifically would have a work in ministry to Gentiles. But prior to that, and in the process of that, we see what we could call maybe some prerequisites to faithful service. The first is that they were worshiping. Did you see that in the text? while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So in the process of being identified by the Holy Spirit for public ministry, they had eyes off of self and eyes on to God. They were worshipers. Any effective 
public servant for Christ must first and foremost be a worshiper of the true and living God. Not a worshiper of self, not in it for the the supposed glory and grandeur or the paycheck or the opportunity, but in it for God. And secondly, they were fasting. Not the kind of involuntary fasting I've been doing this week because my wife's away. This was a spiritual kind of fasting. And in the scriptures, there's, there's many reasons why God's people fast. I did a podcast this week, which I would commend to you on the sin of gluttony. And in there, I talked about how fasting serves to develop within us the ability to exercise self-control over our bodily appetites. But that's not the only reason for fasting. Fasting also is an act of repentance at times in scripture. It involves seeking God's will, and it is an opportunity for us to develop self-control in the area of our fleshly appetites. So in this episode, they were worshiping God and they were exercising discipline in the area of the flesh. And those were things that are good for us to practice and good for us to make priorities in our own lives if we expect to be useful uh, to the Lord. Third question is, what was God's role in equipping them for service? Well, God is the one that ultimately identified them through his Holy Spirit. And the language of the text is that he sets them apart. To be set apart involves two things. A, to be chosen. It's kind of obvious. To be chosen by God. Secondly, to be empowered by God. God will never call you to do something in ministry that he doesn't also equip you to do. So if he calls you to be an encourager, and that's your true calling, when people around are around you, guess what? You're gonna, they're going to be encouraged, not discouraged. If God has called you to serve, if God has called you to evangelize, if God has called you to preach and teach or to shepherd God's people, there's going to be fruit for your labors. Now, we don't need to quantify it. There might be a little bit of fruit for one and much for another, but there will be fruit because when you're called, you're also not only chosen, but you're empowered to be, quote unquote, successful in the task that God has uh, assigned you to. So these men were set apart or called out as missionaries. Notice this. Now, this is where I think it's really practical in a hyper-individualistic, hyper-clannish culture like ours, which has probably affected us more than we even imagine. We're very, very, very focused on me and Jesus, and we don't necessarily see our connectivity to the broader body of Christ. Notice that they are not self-appointed. They're not self-appointed. There is a temptation for many who really, 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 really want to serve in a a public ministry role to self-appoint. It's like, well, how do you know you're being sent as a missionary or evangelist or teacher or preacher? Well, God told me. Okay, but did the people of God affirm it? Oh, that's not relevant. It's just me and Jesus hanging out and we figure everything out between the two of us. Well, it's true that the Holy Spirit of God does affirm and direct our call. But there's a second dimension to this as well. What's the church's role? To affirm their commission by laying on of hands. So this is a biblical paradigm for all public ministry appointments. You need to be called by the Holy Spirit and, not to the exclusion of the first, and affirmed by 
the Christian church. Holy Spirit called and church affirmed. It might seem contradictory. Why do, why do I need the church to affirm my ministry when I've got the Holy Spirit? Well, you can take that up with God because that's a tension you got to learn to live with. But when the people of God are assigned ministry roles, especially in the public realm, there's always a work of the Holy Spirit and some sort of affirmation process by the Christian church. Practically, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you don't have Holy Spirit affirmation, what is it that's going to motivate you? Carnal desires. Carnal desires. And I'll just, I'll just self-disclose here if you don't mind. When it comes to doing things like I do, public ministry, the guy preaching on the platform, most of you are probably like, man, I wouldn't want his job. But there are some that are like, I want to do that. I want to be front and center. I want to be on the stage. I, I want to be a, a, a Christian author. I want to be an elder in the church. Now, there's nothing wrong with aspiring to church leadership. In fact, aspiring to the office of elder is the first qualification given in the New Testament. But it doesn't stop there. Christian ministry, especially in the public realm, is in, at times the best of life, and at other times, the absolute worst. And that could happen within like an hour. It's the best, it's the worst. Those of you that have served in public office, and I know many of you have, know this. It can be incredibly joyful and incredibly difficult. And if you don't have the support and affirmation of God's people, you'll be dead in the water in no time. And it also that the affirmation of God's people guards you against misreading God's plan for your life. When people come alongside and say, yes, you are a very good evangelist, or you're a good preacher, or you're a good missionary, and we want to affirm you and send you out and pray for you, that's a whole lot safer than saying, well, I, I think because my grandma told me I was a good preacher or missionary that I should be a good preacher or missionary. So it guards against carnal appetites. And also safeguards us against the possibility of chaos, of chaos. I know some of you are organized people. You like administration. You like good processes. That's how you think about life. That's, you know, you like, you like to make sure that things are squared up. Others of you are more what we would call free spirits. You kind of just like to have your own schedule, get up when you want, do what you want, spend as you want. And there's nothing innately wrong with that. But in the Christian church, there is structure. In the church institute, there are assigned elders. There are assigned deacons. There's, there's basic structures that God has, has put in place. And making sure you have affirmation from God's people safeguards us from the chaos of running your own ministries with no ultimate accountability or authority over other people. So these are important things for us to take into consideration. Does your ministry align with these two principles, private or public? Can you say that whatever the Lord has called you to do has been both clearly affirmed by the Holy Spirit of God and do you have some sort of affirmation from the Christian church that you're serving in the place that you should be serving in? Second thing is that public ministry, these are kind of the action aspects of it, involves some proactive work, teamwork, and some reactive work. Let me explain those. But first, I'll read uh, for you, beginning with verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> they went down to Seleucia 
and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, now we're reading this all in a, a sentence and a half, but this involved quite a bit of travel. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, sort of the, the governor, if you will, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So they, they're traveling, we get that. They have this audience with a, a man in high office. And then we have this proverbial wrench thrown into the gears. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them. And here's what he wanted to do. This is very egregious. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. So we have three players in the mix. We have, we have uh, Saul, and this is one of the first times where he now goes by the name we, we tend to know him by, Paul. We have Barnabas and we have John. This is, the, this is where the, the uh, acrostic PB and J comes from, by the way, in case you wondered. So we have Paul, Barnabas, and John. They're doing ministry together. They're having this conversation with a guy that was actually interested. They'd summoned him to meet with them. And they're opposed by this magician, this pract practitioner of the black arts. Notice it says, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? That means that whatever comes out of his mouth next is from God. You know, sometimes you speak out of your own personality. Sometimes you speak out of your own opinion. Other times you speak out of Holy Spirit empowerment. Now, before I go any further, I just want to acknowledge most of us are Canadians. And that means we like to be polite. We like to circle in on people. We're always concerned about tone. <laughs> We're always concerned about not ruffling people's feathers. But if you square up your approach in ministry with the word of God, this is going to maybe rattle your cages a little bit. When this man publicly opposes an opportunity to present Christ, listen to how stern and blunt Paul's words are. Filled by the Holy Spirit, by the way. He says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Wow. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. So Paul actually rebukes him publicly, doesn't take him into a side room, rebukes him publicly, public sin, public rebuke. <clears throat> and he pronounces God's judgment upon him and that the man lost his sight. So if you're one of the tone police in the church and you don't like harsh language, you're gonna have a problem with this text. And this isn't limited to uh, Acts chapter 13. There's many times when people are bluntly called out for public sin. For, for standing in the way of the public proclamation of the gospel, the minister of the gospel calls out and rebukes public sin. That's why I have no problem calling out public officials or technocrats or anyone else who stands in the way of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's not your MO. Well, it needs to be your MO. 
because this is how the early Christian church functioned. So it goes on to say, then the proconsul believed, I missed a line, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and when he, when he saw what had occurred, so the very evil that Elymas was participating in was the tool that God used to open the eyes of the proconsul for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So notice the proactive dimension to their ministry. The first thing they do to reach people for Christ, you ready for this? Super complicated. They go where people are. They go where people are. They get on a boat and they travel. They're in Eastern Turkey, what we now know as Eastern Turkey. They're in the Mediterranean. They're in, on the island of Cyprus. If there was an opportunity, they would go. The first thing they would obviously target is a Jewish synagogue because there was obvious connections there because of the fact that these two guys had Jewish background. And then they would go into public places. They would talk to people who held public office. They looked for the natural connections and opportunities. They ventured out. Okay, you ready to really have your cages rattled? They actually went outside of the church to do ministry. They actually went outside of the church to do ministry. <clears throat> you know, many modern public ministries and ministers are shrinking and are not growing. They're not seeing conversion, conversions, because they've disconnected themselves, both on the level of heart and strategy, from the public. Have you noticed that? You could have a Christian young man grow up in a Christian church, go to a Christian school, study at a Christian seminary, and then go pastor a Christian church and have never led anyone to Christ because they have no connection with the lost. Their entire world is within the confines of the church. I would say to anyone who's aspiring to be a missionary in a foreign land, how many people have you led to Christ in Canada? I would say to anyone who wants to train for vocational ministry, how many people have you led to Christ? How many connections do you have with lost people? I'm not talking about being friends of the world and enemies of God. I'm talking about how many connections have you made with lost people? It's, it's, it's tempting to create churches and ministries within which, you know, it's just a place for introverts to hide out and shelter in place from the world. And I get it. When I, when I come to church, except when CBC reporters show up, it's, it's kind of like my safe place. Most people are my brothers and sisters in Christ and they're on board. And, you know, you're probably going to be affirmed more than hated. But if the sum total of my ministry is just hanging with Christians and ministering to Christians, how in the world do we expect the gospel of Jesus Christ to expand apart from maybe having more babies, which isn't a bad thing to do? Have more babies if you can. But we want to reach lost people for Christ. And thank God that somewhere back in my family ancestry, various individuals in different cultures and times led some of my forebears to Christ. And I've been blessed by that, and so have many of you. So it's important for us to go where people go. I would say to you that we don't want you in the church all the time. We don't want you here Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, to clutter up your schedule with so many groups and ministries that you don't have time 
to strategically build relationships with lost people. If you have a heart for the lost, you need to structure your life in such a way that you have contact with lost people. This is why it shouldn't take place on Sunday morning, but this is why joining a hockey league or a baseball league, or as Pastor Chris participates in a knitting club. Um, Just kidding, he doesn't. But I figured I'd jab him a little bit. Participating in groups and activities outside of the church for the sake of building relationships with lost people is is a really, really good thing to do so that you can lead them to Jesus Christ. Secondly, they get assistance. Very briefly, the two men are out. They're obviously, we don't know exactly what they were doing, but they had ministry opportunities presented to them. So they get help from John. And Good leaders expand themselves and multiply themselves because number one, we're not, none of us is going to be here for really that much longer. You know, life is relatively short. But also surrounding yourself with other competent leaders increases accountability, your ability to reach different kinds of people because God uses personality. And, and let's not be so hyper-spiritual that we can't acknowledge that. God uses personalities to minister to different people. You know that. Some people want to be with you. Some people want to be with me. And some people I'm hearing don't want to be with you. And I know lots of people that don't want to be with me. They just, I don't like the guy's personality. Maybe I agree with what he says, but I don't like his personality. Okay, not everybody likes yours. Different connections are going to be made depending on who you are. And we have different personalities Paul acts differently than Barnabas does. Luke writes differently than Mark does. There's personality in scripture and God uses different personalities. So building your leadership team and training other people is strategic for that purpose. It also helps you to train other people up. And we can also learn from other people who are involved in ministry. One of the things I love about having lots of great leaders in this church is I, I'm always learning from them in terms of how they approach things and how they interact with people. And then we have the reactive side. So proactive teamwork, and then we have a dealing with false teachers and troublemakers. This is not a fun part of ministry, but it's necessary. So as these uh, individuals uh, evangelize an official in, in public office, a jealous false teacher dives in and tries to throw them off. I think we would all agree there are few things you could think about that are more egregious than hindering someone from hearing Jesus who wants to listen. That's this pretty, pretty nasty, a pretty nasty thing for this man to do. So Paul confronts him in holy anger, and the result is that spiritual blindness is now linked to physical blindness and the proconsul comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I may appear to you to be naturally bold. I don't think I am. Any boldness or courage that I have to confront evil is because of my convictions. I would much rather fade into the woodwork and just not have to deal with conflict. We're all like that. 
And I think it's important for us to identify the obstacles that sometimes hinder us from confronting sin. It might be, it's just awkward. Can we not agree with that? It's just awkward to confront other people. Secondly, it it often leads to the breakdown of a relationship if the person doesn't repent. And who wants to lose relationships? Uh, Third, it might mean that you're attacked by the person you're trying to confront. They throw it back at you. By the way, if you, if you ever are confronted by someone else, don't play dirty pool. Even if the person is wrong about what they're suggesting, hear them out. But one of the, one of the things people often do when they're confronted is they immediately, oh yeah, but what about you? And they start to bring up something you've done. Well, why don't we have, why don't we agree to, right now we're talking about you once that conversation's done. Then if you want to talk about me, let's talk about me. But this is a classic defensive tactic. And none of us like that. And when people have played that trick on you time and time again, it's easy to think, you know what? I'm just not even going to bother with it. Forget it, because I know the tactic. I know exactly what's going to happen next. But on principle, we need to still do the right thing, even if it exposes us to attack. We also expose ourselves to spiritual attack. When you're confronting people, they might say something that ruffles your feathers. It, suddenly you've got the sin of bitterness that's growing in your life or, or you, you start to become angry at, at other Christians if it happens to be a Christian or maybe you're overwhelmed with your own inadequacies, whatever it might be. And these are the reasons why we often resist public confrontation. But we have to do it. We do it within our church. It's called church discipline. We must do it to those outside of a church that hinder the evangelistic efforts of the Christian church. In order for this to happen, we need to make sure it's an actual breach of conduct. We need to pick the right time. We need to be firm. And then let God do what only God can do. And it might get worse before it gets better. But in this situation, it gets better pretty quick. As the official comes to faith in Christ. And then finally, as with so many other occasions, the bold proclamation of the gospel results in conversions. I'll take you back to verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. One of the biggest challenges, I think, in the modern church to being bold is partly the threats of the godless around us, but it's also this, can I offend you a little bit more? Do you mind? Put up your hand if you don't mind being offended. Okay, there's enough of you here, I'm gonna offend you. Although chances are if you put up your hand, you're not easily offended. But there is a certain malaise in the Western church, a certain neutrality on many subjects, a certain desire for comfort. And, and we, we just, we, we tend to be, we want to just kind of lay low. We want to stay below the radar. We, we don't want to stick our head up. We don't want to take any heat. We don't want to take any shrapnel. And so when, when you are bold, if you are bold, just be prepared for this because I've seen it time and time again. Oh, you must be arrogant. You must be prideful. You must be arrogant. You must be prideful. You're so conceited. Well, 
I think all of us need to be aware of arrogance and pride in our lives because it can easily sneak in. But within the Christian church, I think there's more heat that you'll take from other Christians because you're blunt, you're too bold, you're too straight up. Like, can't you circle in a little bit more than, than there should be? And usually, I would say it's simply a reflection of cowardice. And if you say that, well, then you're doubly going, going to be uh, implicated as a person who is, is conceited. But here's where, here's where we need to land. At the end of the day, if you believe something is true, true enough to be worth speaking, you just say it. You tell the truth and nothing but the truth. And you do the same thing tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and decade after decade. Just speak the truth. Speak the truth to power. Speak the truth within your church and let God do what God's gonna do. If the people run you out of town, so be it. You shake the dust off your feet and you go on to the next town. This happened in the gospel. It's recorded in the gospel of Luke. But there may be times when as a result of your boldness and courage, a public official someone who's not in the church, someone who you wouldn't expect comes to faith in Jesus Christ and God gets the glory for it. And this makes it, this makes it so worthwhile. So don't let cowardness or timidity or dare I say your Canadianness, your commitment to being polite, hinder you from preaching the full counsel of God. Well, today, brothers and sisters, we've witnessed Many people be baptized and we're thankful for that. We praise God for it. And we just have been beautifully reminded that God is still at work in this world. And that means we need more vocational ministers and missionaries and lay leaders to be raised up to do the work of the ministry. Because I have a suspicion God's gonna lead a few more to Christ yet. And I hope you believe that as well. But let's make sure we are both led by the Holy Spirit and affirmed by the Christian church, and then do what needs to be done proactively, working as teams reactively to get the gospel out to a very needy 